0: hello and welcome back to rewildology the podcast that explores conservation travel and rewilding the planet i'm your host brooke mitchell norman conservation biologist and adventure traveler when i say to picture yourself in the heart of yellowstone i'm sure a flood of charismatic species and iconic images came to mind wolves bears bison old faithful gorgeous mountains, and dramatic geological features all represent this pristine landscape. Now, what about a lesser-known but very important species that is never seen, a master at avoiding humans, and close to impossible to study? How do we enter the lives of such an elusive creature and understand their impact on Yellowstone's ecosystem? To give us insight into such difficult questions, today we're sitting down with wildlife biologist and Yellowstone predator expert, Jack Raby. Jack grew up in northern Ohio hunting and fishing on Lake Erie with his father. When it came time to pick a major, Jack decided to study wildlife sciences at The Ohio State University. And yes, Jack and I totally bonded over our time at Ohio State. Upon graduation day, he received a phone call asking if he could drive 26 hours across the country to join the Yellowstone Wolf Project. Without hesitation, he said yes, grabbed his degree, and headed west. Jack has been working on Yellowstone's wolf and cougar projects since 2017 and is now a PhD student at the University of Minnesota, studying the impact each major carnivore has on the area's infamous elk population. Jack and I chat about so many things, including all things mountain lion biology, these cats role in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. How the heck someone researches this impossible cat, complete with lots of stories, trust me, and what the future looks like for Yellowstone's biggest feline. If you're enjoying the show and want to be one of the first to hear about new announcements, episodes, interesting articles, etc., head on over to rewildology.com and sign up for the Rewildology newsletter. Also, follow the podcast on your favorite social media app and say hi! I always love to hear your stories, thoughts about the show, and anything else you'd like to share. All right, friends, here's my conversation with Jack. Hi, Jack. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today and having another awesome episode of the Rewoodology Podcast. And I'm very excited to go back to a destination that we've had on the podcast before, but for a very different species which is going to be wonderful to dive into. And I was just there. I can't believe we missed each other.
1: I know, it was days. so close. It was so close.
0: <laughs> oh, I've always introduced us like
1: two we pro- hours earlier. <laughs> I know we were probably in the field together and like didn't even <laughs> yes, know it.
0: Yeah, Watching the same ones
1: or something, yeah. <laughs>
0: actually yeah. you're probably right because we were watching yeah. wolves and bears the whole time so yeah we might have even been at the same sighting and had literally no e- no clue yes. the other one existed
1: <laughs> saw the same pack everything same bears yeah
0: yeah I'm same sure. pups same cubs. god yeah how cool how freaking cool so we'll just have to go back and then of course share all of our new explorations but we haven't even said the species that we're getting into and i will let you do that so you grew up in my neck of the woods which is so fun and so crazy so we are both ohioans just opposite sides of ohio but we're both from ohio yes yes so fun oh H. um i'm sorry i, I just know. made like so many people puke but <laughs> oh
1: no you gotta do it you gotta do it yeah have to. you
0: gotta do it yes exactly so What's your story here? Why did you decide to go into wildlife first? And then how did you get all the way over to Yellowstone?
1: Yeah, so growing up, uh, I can't even like remember when, but I know by the time I was two years old, my dad had already had a fishing pole in my hand. I have pictures of me fishing in a little river with like a little tiny uh, spin cast rod. It was like three feet long no memory of that, but I know it's always been there. Um, and yeah, that was kind of my introduction into wildlife and fishing hunting at a young age too. And, you know, he's probably going to hate me for saying this, but my dad has kind of always had some issues with drinking other things like that. And, you know, that was in, in a lot of ways that kind of kept some distance between us at times, but at the same time, because of our kind of mutual love and passion for fishing, for hunting, for wildlife um, that kind of kept that bond there. And it was really the way that I stayed connected to him uh, even to this day. And that kind of led to, you know, at first it was that connection, the way to hang out with him. And then I started, you know, asking these questions, you know, why are are butterflies looking this way that I'm catching with my grandpa? You know, why are there all these different species? Why are we finding some butterflies here and others here? you know, why are we finding some in a meadow versus some, um, you know, by a stream, you know, same thing with hunting and fishing. Why are we catching these fish here, these fish here? Why are there so many differences? Uh, So that kind of led to the, you know, the nature documentaries on Saturday morning. A lot of, you know, kids were probably watching Nickelodeon, which I I did that too. But, you know, I was sitting there with a bowl of cereal at 10 years old, watching a lion take down a gazelle or (laughs) wolves hunting elk in Yellowstone. And that, that something about those like predators, um, and that like relationship, you know, the coevolution of of predators with prey was just like always drew me in. It was always something that I was fascinated by, uh, and really since that young age, uh, I always had this passion of wanting to go into wildlife, um, which then kind of took me to Ohio State, where I studied wildlife science for four years. Graduated in twenty seventeen. Did a few internships here and there, one in southeast Ohio at uh, another place where like we <laughs> cross paths. you yeah. were there, didn't even know it at the Wilds, because is this conservation facility. And I did a wildlife ecology internship, which was really cool. I got to do, you know, some rough grouse drumming surveys where we'll just walk through these right of ways with six, seven foot tall reeds, grasses, you know, there's mosquitoes everywhere. Uh, ticks everywhere. So We're just listening, ticks. listening for the drumming of uh, rough grouse while I'm like the back of my mind. I'm like, Oh, I'm definitely going to miss a tick and get Lyme disease. What, what am I doing? <laughs> this is awful. Um, yep. Did a lot of camera trap work to try and look at movements of deer in association with uh, bobcats and coyotes. Then moved next year in 2016 to work out you know all the way across the country. That was kind of my first big road trip too. Stopped through Yellowstone, through Utah, all these different parks on my way to California, where I worked uh, 28 miles off the coast of San Francisco on uh, the Farallon Islands, doing some seabird work, some invasive plant monitoring, um, carrying you know a 50-pound tank of herbicide around a rocky cliffs and islands. Uh, with gall, angry gulls swooping down at me the whole time, um, but it was good fun. You know, you have you watch whales out your window while you're like eating breakfast in the morning, or you go for a walk and you see you know sea lions sitting on your trail that you have to walk that day. Um, so that was kind of my first like introduction to things out west, or really to a place that I had never experienced before, um, and then driving you know through the west uh really just put that bug in me and i was immediately hooked on being out west and kind of moving from the flat areas of of the midwest that i grew up on i was i was sick of it i needed a change of pace uh, and i was fortunate enough to um get an offer in 2017 right after i graduated you know like a day before i had my last final i was actually walking to my final i got a call saying hey you know in two weeks we're starting our summer predation um in Yellowstone can you be there and I was like sure like moments notice <laughs> dropped everything I was like I'm gonna go I need to go to Yellowstone to do this uh, I had not heard like anything back from other stuff I'd applied for had no idea I was still even in the running for this got the call I was like yes I will be there uh, this is a dream come true and that's kind of how I got my start in 2017 I showed up drove across the country graduated the day before, drove 26 hours to Yellowstone, uh, immediately went to the office. They're, the, they're like my tax fellow um, co-workers for the rest of the season. were just sitting there. Hey, can you help us age this You know, elk mandible that we just got back from a wolf kill? Uh, <laughs> met Doug Smith, who was the like, head of the Wolf Project, also from Ohio, Shaker Heights, like 30 minutes away from where I grew up. Huge Buckeyes fan, too. Um, so that was a, a connection immediately, <laughs> but you know, I had I had seen all this work, you know, wolves hunting elk, seen Doug Smith on you know nature documentaries, all these different people, and immediately I was just like thrown into this uh, environment and this world, and I I loved it immediately. Um, went on a hike the next day, like thirteen miles to a kill where bite wolves had killed the bison, taken it down. I uh, had like three thousand feet of elevation gain almost died like, way, did you was pass barely like- <laughs> was barely breathing going from you know 500 feet 800 feet elevation up to like 7,000 feet above sea level and i was like oh my god maybe this isn't the right place for me i'm dying i'm not going to survive <laughs> regret, i have to do this, to do this all summer long uh and it took me like three weeks to finally get in even remotely decent enough shape to like hike and keep up with the other techs but um yeah, that's that was kind of my start, following around these GPS collared um, wolves and cougars, uh, which is that species that we'll be talking about today. Cougar, mountain lion, catamount, puma—all these different names that we have for them. But that's kind of where I got my start.
0: That is such a fun story, and for anyone who hasn't just randomly been thrown into elevation, like just the fact that oh, you- it's
1: so brutal. <laughs>
0: You did 13 miles with 3,000 feet elevation gain, and you hadn't even been acclimated for like 12 hours to elevation. That sounds so Yeah, brutal.
1: it was <laughs> such a horrible idea. Don't recommend it no. to anyone. Take a day or two at least
0: Oh my gosh. to get used to it. Yeah, even when people come visit me in Denver, I'm like, okay, you're going to drink lots of water. I'm going to have ibuprofen close, and we're going to go do a mild hike. Yes. And maybe that's it so the fact you did
1: that yeah
0: it's just whoo. oh
1: yeah and i definitely had no idea how much water to take finished it in like the first two hours was not prepared for that i had to borrow other people's water for the land <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> oh those are real stories okay okay so let's get to these cougars so Everybody knows about wolves in Yellowstone. I even had a fantastic episode. You know Aaron personally as well, where we dove so deep into wolves. And they are a very important part of this conversation. And of course, by default, in this area and predator interactions, we will be talking about them. But just like you said, our focus is actually on cougars, the mountain lions that are in the area. So, Let's actually start talking about their biology first. So how are they a little different and what is it like to be a mountain lion in Yellowstone when you have a full intact ecosystem?
1: Yeah. So cougars, you know, they're not like wolves. Wolves oftentimes, you know, go into an area. They love these open valleys, hillsides, plains where they can travel pretty great distances and then also find prey and then send them running. That's their kind of MO. They send their prey running because all they have is that mouth to bring prey down and they want to find a weak individual. With cougars, it's a little different. You have what we'd call a fancy word, supinating wrists, just like we have where you can turn them in and out. Um, You know, wolves, dogs can't do that. They just kind of have these paws, flat paws. Um, But cougars have these supinating wrists. They can grab things. They have really sharp claws. They're not dull. And then they also have really large canines, actually bigger than canines canines. Um, so, in a lot of times, we we think that it'd probably be more aptly named felines um, if we're looking at those teeth, because uh, they're really built to grab onto an animal. And what they'll usually do is grab onto the neck, maybe the skull, and either try and suffocate it, break the neck, or you know crush the skull, which is a lot of times what other big cats will do, like jaguars, that sort of thing. Um, But cougars, you know, their anatomy is really different. Wolves, again, are built for these endurance runs. Um, They kind of have these really long legs, shorter tails, um, and they're tall. Whereas cougars are really low to the ground. You know, a standing cougar might only come up to your knee uh, and they have these really short legs, really good low center of gravity, which is built for these rocky cliffy areas, super long tail that helps with the balance. They can climb trees, jump across you know, cliffs, boulders. They're built for this rugged terrain. And with that, you know, they're solitary in these areas. They're moving through these areas. They're ambush predators uh, rather than the wolves that hunt in these big groups in these packs. And a lot of times, you know, these cougars, you might have a female with kittens that are attached to it. But other than that, it's really gonna be uh, a solitary individual. You you might have males uh, in the mating time too, linking up with females. But oftentimes it's, you know, it can be a lonely life uh, for a cougar. And because of that, if you're on the landscape with these different carnivores like wolves, you got to watch out for them because a single cougar against a pack of 10 wolves, uh, a lot of times there's no chance and they're going to get kicked out of an area. So that's, we think there's part of a reason too there why they select um, for these really rugged. Uh, terrain, this country that has you know, not only a lot of good ambush territory to attack prey, but also a lot of good escape territory to get away from other predators like wolves uh, that pose a threat to them and then especially their kittens if you're a mom.
0: And so that interaction, I would really love to just dive deeper into that. So I've been to Africa and I've studied a lot of African predators. And when you go onto the plains, you can see with your own eyes, the interactions for the different carnivore levels. So, you know, lions and hyenas and cheetahs and leopards and they all are mixing together and coexisting in some very unique ways. And we don't usually have the opportunity to think about that in a North American setting, but what we have now in Yellowstone is all of the layers. So I would love to talk about that for a second, How do these players interact with each other and what happens when they meet?
1: Yeah, exactly. So wolves and bears, uh, especially grizzly bears and Yellowstone, they're the top of the food chain. They're the dominant ones. Um, And even at kill sites, they kind of go neck and neck. And a lot of times a grizzly bear can even push off, you know, a dozen, 20 wolves even and, and hold their ground on a kill. So a lot of times bears will come in and steal wolf kills. And it's the same thing for cougars, but with cougars, it's harder because you're alone. You, you don't have the body size that a grizzly bear has, you don't have the strength that they have, and then you don't have the numbers that a wolf pack has. So where a wolf pack is probably gonna hang out near a kill site if a grizzly bear comes in and steals it from them, you know they're not really at risk of being attacked by the bears. If anything, usually the bear might get pushed back off the kill. By the wolves, because it's just not worth trying to sit there and feed on a kill if you're getting constantly harassed by a bunch of wolves. But with cougars, you know, it's different. You have a wolf pack that might come in, or, you know, a 200 pound black bear, 300, 400 pound grizzly bear come in. If you're a 100 pound cougar and that's that's all you have to defend a carcass, a lot of times you're going to get pushed around. So we have wolf packs that'll come in in the wintertime mostly. Um, and they'll kick cougars off kills you know dogs wolves they both have great senses of smell uh, a lot of times if a raven or other birds can find a kill too that a cougar's made wolves will key in on that and they'll see you know ravens other birds circling and they're like okay that's a place i need to head because there might be a carcass there um, bears even better sense of smell than than canines um and cats they can, you know, smell carcasses from miles away. We think uh, they'll come in and and also steal kills. I think over half of the kills that we go to that cougars make on the landscape, these bear we find sign at least of black bears or grizzly bears at these kills, and that's mostly happening in the summertime. Even at like elk calf kills that cougars make, so cougars get pushed around a lot. They're kind of the um, the lowest lowest person on the totem pole uh, animal on the totem pole when it comes to predators, you know, even if you have three or four coyotes together, they could push around a female with kittens, um, because those coyotes might, you know, target the kittens. So, you know, they're, they're kind of used to being pushed around and that's where we think that evolution of their caching behavior comes from, you know, a wolf pack, they bring down a big elk. If you have 10 wolves, they could finish it in two, three hours. Um, or if it's a bison a day or two, Whereas cougars don't have that luxury of being able to clean up a carcass, get all their meat and then get out of there. You know, it's gonna take them a week. Sometimes if it's a really big elk and it's just one small cougar, they might feed on that kill for three, four weeks at a time. So they need something to, you know, mask the scent, mask that visual of the carcass to prevent these intruders from coming in. So they do what we call this caching behavior And a lot of domestic cats have kind of, you still see those same behaviors in them um, where they'll go in, they'll feed on a kill, and then they'll just pile a bunch of sticks on it, snow, debris, all sorts of stuff, dirt, bury that kill to mask any of that scent from getting out, um, to prevent anything from seeing it overhead. So that's where they're making kills in these steep areas, these rugged areas, uh, and these densely covered areas most of the time, especially where we see, these other predators kind of coexisting together Um, so that's kind of the main differences that we see there with cougars where they're doing everything they can uh, to avoid being detected by other animals both for their sake of finding food um, but also for the sake of keeping that food and being able to eat it over time
0: so if they're having their food stolen from them from pretty much everything i don't even know coyotes could push them off which that's crazy are they compensating in some way so how do they manage having all their food stolen essentially because they're still around so they're making it work so how do they make it work
1: yeah so that's where we've seen um over time shifts and how they behave so before wolves were reintroduced to yellowstone Cougars weren't using as rugged and steep terrain, densely covered terrain as they do now after being on the landscape with wolves for 20 plus years now. So that's one way they've kind of shifted their habitat use in their territories uh, to these really steep areas, where would they know that they're gonna encounter wolves and bears less often than they would if they had used more open areas. Another thing is they're just killing more than they were before. So we've had some cases where you know, typically cougars will kill an elk or uh, an ungulate, a hoofed animal, which is usually deer or elk or bighorn sheep maybe, around once a week is usually what we say in Yellowstone. That's about our average uh, kill rate. We've had some cases where bears have stolen almost every kill from a cougar in a month period, and they more than doubled their kill rate in that time. Wow. So they killed an animal Uh, about every two or three days instead so there's a lot of stuff thinking about that too where you have these other predators coming in that just impact you know even prey because cougars have to compensate they have to you know they're getting their food stolen so they have to kill more often than they would have had to if wolves or bears weren't coming in Uh, and taking some of their food, or even sometimes, you know, ravens or these other animals like coyotes um, that will steal some food from cougar kills.
0: Yeah, so, okay, so... Tell me if I've interpreted correctly. So the stronger the pressures are on them from other predators, then the more that they kill essentially. So this might be too in-depth of like a science question. Um, Is that actually affecting then the actual prey populations too when these predator interactions get too strong? Or is that too nuanced of a question?
1: (laughs) No, no, that makes sense. And that's a lot of what I'll be, what I'm actually looking at. And I guess one thing I I didn't get to uh, is that you know, I started in 2017 working here in Yellowstone. I kind of moved on from a volunteer role that I started in, worked full-time as a tech for three and a half years, and then now I've transitioned into a PhD program at University of Minnesota, which is still in conjunction with the Yellowstone projects, the Wolf project, the Cougar project, and the Elk project. And that's kind of what all my work is looking at, is, you know, a lot of work's been done, as you said, on say, what are wolves doing? How are they impacting elk? We've all, a lot of us have seen the like wolves change rivers video, but you know, it's more complex than that. There's cougars, there's grizzly bears, there's black bears, there's people that are also hunting elk at the same time. So my work is kind of looking at teasing apart these effects of different predators on the elk population. And one of those things that I want to look at is, well, what is the role of having these other predators on the landscape? How is that affecting, you know, kill rate of one predator? Um, When you'd think, you know, if you're just thinking kind of simply that that predator is going to be independent of these others, but really even these other predators are impacting how often a cougar kills elk. And I think that's a great question to ask because it's something that's really nuanced, that's really complex, that we haven't really thought about um, in a lot of these systems. And a lot of times we don't have the data either to back it up where we can actually look at, oh, well, how often are wolves or bears coming in and kicking cougars off of kills? How does that then impact how many elk they kill, how many deer they kill uh, each year? And you know, I think there's a little bit of both. There might be a balancing act where, yes, it could increase the impact that cougars have on elk if they keep getting their uh, food stolen from them. But at the same time, if bears or wolves increase how much they're like scavenging off of these kills, it then might have the opposite effect for them because they're getting more food from scavenging, which might mean they need to kill prey less often. So there could be a little bit of a balancing act there where we see these differences in how much the individual predators are impacting, say an elk population, but we might not see that effect from the elk population itself if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that totally does. So I think that the next question I just I just wrote this down as you were talking. Does Yellowstone have a carrying capacity for predators? What how is this going to balance out? Have we reached a balanced level or are are all predator populations growing in in conjunction with elk or where is the balance currently? that you're seeing across the ecosystem
1: yeah great question and i would say we have reached that balance for sure um and probably in the last 10 years or so cougars recolonized yellowstone on their own again they kind of had the luxury of being this cryptic species that nobody really sees nobody really knows they're there whereas wolves are very visceral everybody knows about wolves we have this connection with them through dogs people either love them or they hate them Whereas cougars, again, just like our house cats are very secretive. And a lot of times we don't know they're there. So they were they had that kind of luxury and moved back into Yellowstone on their own doing, where we had to reintroduce wolves. Uh, and they came back in the late 80s. Their population grew pretty dramatically for about 10 years. Then we think probably around the mid 2000s, they reached what we would kind of deem carrying capacity, where they balanced out and we haven't really seen any population change in the last 15 uh, years or so. And that number, we think is right around maybe 35 to 40 individual cougars in Yellowstone. And that's really limited to that kind of northern strip, what we call the northern rate, the northern range of Yellowstone, um, which is defined by the kind of wintering range of the really famous elk herd that uses that area that we've been studying um, for the last, really like 50, 60 years now. So you know, there's not a lot of good habitat in the rest of the park. It's all kind of lodgepole pine stands. In the wintertime, it has a ton of snow. So there's just not really good prey densities in the rest of the interior. Snow is too deep. There's not a lot of great escape terrain for cougars. So we think most of them do live in that Northern strip of Yellowstone. And then with wolves, we saw kind of the same thing happen right around, um, I would say, Last 10 years or so, they've reached what we think is around carrying capacity with what the prey densities are now. Right at about 100 wolves throughout the park. Uh, grizzly bear numbers, probably around 150 that use Yellowstone throughout the year. Again, it's kind of complicated because they'll move out at different times of year following different food resources. Um, and black bears, we think, probably about 150 to 200 again in that northern strip maybe closer to 500 or so in the whole Yellowstone, of Yellowstone National Park, but we don't have great estimates on that. But it seems like all these kind of different predators have reached their carrying capacity. Um, and that's kind of happened along the same line with what the elk population has done. Where in the last five to 10 years, that elk population that was originally at about 20,000 at wolf reintroduction, because of all these predators moving in, because of human hunting on elk in that span, that was really intensive. Has kind of been driven down to six to eight thousand elk, and we've been kind of holding steady there for about half a decade now. And it looks like elk or elk two are about at um, carrying capacity.
0: So that makes a lot of sense then why there is so much talk over elk because they are a prize trophy and they are tasty. I will say that and. I've had elk, it's great. and Oh, it's fantastic. And it's it's really one of the big conversations that we have when it comes from like a political standpoint. Because that, that was a really, I just, I'm so grateful you brought that up because that was not brought up in my episode with Aaron. It was, so hunters originally did have a reason to be pretty upset. Like when the wolves came, because the numbers, it sounds like it, they really did dramatically decrease by over Half like yeah, um, they dropped
1: that, by I think 67% around there, 60 to 70 percent
0: mm. um,
1: in the last since reintroduction in 1995
0: Yeah. Okay, okay. So that makes sense, especially if that was one of the main food, food sources for a lot of people that lived in that range. I mean, I can understand what people would be really upset if that did more substance hunting or had hunting outfits that oh yeah. So all of these things combined. So we have three top predators that are great at killing elk and then us who really never stopped. So that just makes sense then why they were dramatically so decreased. And then also why a lot of people were upset. Thank you for shedding that light yeah. on me because I did that, that he, that one fact that you just said, I think connected just so many dots for me.
1: <laughs> yeah. And it's, that's where it's complex because wolves is what everyone sees. And that's when the elk population started to decline, was in 1995. But if it was only wolves on the landscape, there's no way they would have had the effect that we've seen on the elk population. It really took the combined effects of these different predators, of wolves killing elk, of cougars killing elk, of grizzly bears and black bears killing elk, and then of people killing elk, you know, before wolves were even brought back, Elk had become such a problem in these areas for ranchers, mixing with cattle, other things like that, um, coming onto their land, that the state, for, since 1976, was specifically targeting female pregnant elk Whoa. to kill them in late, like late term, like January, February, only a few months before the calves would be born, uh, and they were killing thousands of elk from year to year to try and drive down the elk population and they couldn't do it themselves. They couldn't kill enough elk and it just kept rebounding because without any predators on the landscape, carrying capacity was closer to probably 20,000 elk, we think. And the problem with that too, is having 20,000 elk in a landscape with grazing conditions that can't support that many elk is the elk would go into winter in horrible condition and we'd have thousands that would die off every year I mean, it was a rough life for them. You know, yes, there were twenty thousand elk. Yes, outfitters, other people could you know go out and easily shoot an elk for their clients and make a bunch of money on it. But the elk were in really poor condition uh, at that time. And you know when we'd have these really severe conditions, severe winters, you'd have thousands that would die off. And that was another part that kind of played into this you know really complicated story of elk management in Yellowstone and how this population has shifted is from 1976 until about 2009, really 2004, we were still doing that late harvest where people were targeting these female pregnant elk for 30 years and about 15 years after reintroduction of wolves. And we think that humans combined with climate and really harsh winters, harsh droughts, and that kind of first 10 years since reintroduction were the main drivers of the decline in the elk population. But having wolves, having cougars, having grizzly bears and black bears, in which bears, you know, they kill a ton of elk calves every year. They kill more elk calves than any other predator combined. Having these, you know, the composite effects of all these different predators, all these different um, kind of variables in the mix is what drove that elk population down to 6,000 to 8,000. Which for the elk and for the ecosystem, it's a much healthier number. We don't see uh, very much die-off at all. You'll get some old individuals that'll die off just because they're in poor condition every year, but we don't see very much, you know, winter kill, as we would say, where animals are dying of starvation, of disease, of these other things that aren't, you know, old age or predation by or hunting. Yeah.
0: Okay. So that's fantastic to understand. So everything has pretty much reached its natural balance. So we're only supposed to have six to 8,000 elk essentially from a natural standpoint. I have to ask too, just, just, I never want to leave the people conversation out of this. And we did that. That was great. Thank you so much for hitting on that. How much conflict are people actually getting in with Cougars and mountain Lions?
1: Yeah, so in and around Yellowstone, very little. We get some people that see them, but again, very rare sightings. You know, even in my five years following them, almost all of my sightings have been from capturing operations. I've had very few sightings where I didn't, I just kind of happenstance found a mountain lion or found a cougar. Um, But in Yellowstone, we really don't see any sort of conflict. And even outside the park, uh, there's not a lot of there. You know, every once in a while, uh, we had a report, I think, next door to me we had a sub-adult male that was actually living under someone's deck for a little bit because it had killed a deer and they ended up euthanizing it because oh it was, people thought it was a public safety issue and i'm sure like maybe it lost its mother it was a young cougar that was probably on its own you know too early potentially um and thought you know this was an easier way to make a living than being out in the harsh environment of yellowstone on your own at such a young age but other than that, that's kind of the only conflict that I've heard of. And in most cases, that's where it boils down to is a lot of people think of them more as a public safety risk than uh, like a livestock depredating risk that we see from wolves. Where I think a lot of people are starting to understand after living with wolves for a while that they're not uh, as big of a like public safety risk, that we don't really see them, people getting attacked by wolves. We do sometimes see people getting attacked by cougars. Most of the time it's, it's younger cougars that are kicked out from mom and they don't really know how to fend for themselves as much. And they see a jogger running, a biker running. I think we just had someone get attacked last week, unfortunately, in the American West. Um, so that does happen. And again, a lot of times we do have livestock depredations. We have hundreds of cougars every year across the West that do get killed and euthanized because they are interfering in, in killing livestock sheep mostly smaller um, livestock rather than you know cattle that you might see more from wolves but we do see it and i'm sure there are plenty of cases where uh, people might be blaming wolves for times where cougars or bears might actually be the culprit um, in these livestock incidents
0: Hmm. okay well at least it sounds like yeah the the cats are sometimes unfortunately at the end of something bad. But for the most part, they really are great at avoiding people.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're as I kind of always say, and same thing with wolves, same thing with bears, most of the time they're afraid of us. They there's so many times where like I looked back at GPS points of cougars and like there was a cougar in the area and we didn't even know it. Or like I got a half second glimpse of a cat. Uh, in the wild, and it was gone because they want nothing to do with us most of the time. They're afraid of us. They look at us as a potential threat. In a lot of places, we hunt them, uh, and that's that's how they see us, as another competitor on the landscape that could be a threat to them and could kill them.
0: And as you said, they are very used to being the lowest on the totem pole, and so I'm sure it sounds like they might view us the exact same way too.
1: Yes, Would- Yeah. That's how, that's how I would look at it, yeah. Mm,
0: okay, yeah, that totally makes sense. Uh, and why they've not showed their face to me yet. <laughs> yes. I have like I've done everything that's within moral reason, of course. Yes. To actually see one of these things. I've found kill sites. I've tracked them. I've done everything just short of joining a study with you to go yeah. color one or something, <laughs> which you might need to change that. On that yeah. note... How in the world do you study these cats that I can't even, for the life of me, see a freaking live one? So, like, how do you do this? How do you get any data on these things? Yeah. And, and has it changed across time? Like, how you actually accru- accurately get data? So, yeah, how how do you do what you do?
1: Yeah. So you know, a lot of species, birds, wolves, especially in Yellowstone, it can be a little bit easy sometimes because you'll drive out through a valley. And you can sit there for an entire month sometimes and follow the lives of an entire wolf pack and watch them make their kills, watch them feed for an entire day. Uh, and you can document that really well. Uh, where with cougars, it's a lot harder. We don't see them. You know, a lot of times we have no clue what they're doing. So really the only way that we can a lot of times get really good data on them is through either non-invasive ways or through collaring. And we do a lot of collaring and Traditionally in Yellowstone, that's been the main way that we've studied cougars. Um, Back in the late eighties, early nineties, and then the late nineties, early two thousands, we kind of had two different phases of cougar research. And in both those cases, they collared anywhere from 80 to 90% of the population. Wow. We don't go anywhere near that now with wolves and cougars. We think we have about 25% of the population collared. And we think that's you know pretty good we don't want to constantly be disturbing their lives a lot of technological advancements recently non-invasive kind of genetic methods camera trapping through trail cameras that we can now kind of switch to monitoring them but for especially monitoring predation how often they're making kills which a lot of times when we're thinking of predators that's what a lot of people care about and especially thinking about the elk issue here, people wanna know what are the cougars doing to the elk population? What are they doing to the deer population? And to get at any sort of thing like that, you really need to be following them around with GPS collars. So I have a few here. So I've got a GPS collar here, really tiny neck. You know, they're, They have really, really small necks and this fit around uh, F209, which was one of our, our collared cougars. I think she lived to be probably around, I think, 11, 12 years old. Oh wow, um, which is about an average lifespan of a female cougar. Males, in most species, just like cougars, tend to live little shorter lives, more competition between each other, probably seven to eight years old for the males. But with these sort of you know fancy collars that end up costing around two to three thousand um, dollars, we can follow the lives of these animals, and what we'll do to put a collar on a cougar? which is very different from other animals. With wolves, we can you know, use, in a lot of places, leg-hold traps. In Yellowstone, we don't. In Yellowstone, we use helicopters to dart wolves in the deep snow. Then we'll put collars on them, because it's easier that way. You can get a lot of wolves out in the open. With cougars, we can't do that. You can't bring a helicopter into a steep canyon and hope <laughs> to dart a cougar in a dense forest. Not at all. <laughs> so, and just how we, a lot of people end up hunting cougars outside the park We'll use hounds. So we have a, a houndsman that we partnered with for many years. He's got fantastic dogs that are really well trained. And what we'll do is we'll go out, find a set of fresh tracks that we think either is a cougar that needs to be recollared, fit with a new one of these, or an uncollared cat. We can look at, you know, GPS points and see, okay, we know that none of our collared cougars are in this area. So this must be an uncollared cougar. And by looking at the track, oftentimes by the size, we can say, okay, this is an adult female, most likely this is probably an adult male. And depending on what we really wanna collar, we can kind of tailor it around that and say, okay, we definitely wanna get this new female that's using this area, because we could probably get good uh, data on her kittens and maybe collar them two years down the road. Um, and that could create you know a whole lineage of of cougar lives that we've been able to follow. And we did that with this cougar as well. Where we caught her daughter F two ten, who's still alive today, and we've been following her for for now four years since twenty eighteen. Um, but the really cool thing about these collars is, you know, they'll send a GPS location to our satellite or computer uh, every hour, every three hours, depending on how we set it. You know, there's kind of a lot of trade offs of you know how often do I want to get points at uh, sacrificing the the battery and the longevity of these collars. And if we did points every 15 minutes, they might only last a few months. But if we did a point every hour, every three hours, we could get, you know, maybe three, two to three years out of one of these collars and follow them around. So, what we'll do is once we get these points on our computer for, say, a whole week stretch in the winter or summer, is we can use these kind of fancy algorithms that pick out locations where a cougar, say, spent six hours here and didn't really move outside of a say 200 meter 200 yard radius so that would be you know usually indicative of i was either sleeping here or i made a kill and i was feeding here Uh, and a lot of times with cougars it's really easy you can look at it the cougar won't leave a spot for say a full week and you're like okay that's got to be a kill site so we'll pull out all of these locations where they stayed in one area for six or more hours um in this small location then we'll search all of those clusters it's kind of what we call them GPS clusters and we'll go out to those and follow them for you know an entire month or three month stretch and we'll be able to detect what we think is pretty much every kill that that cougar made in that period of time and when we go to these sites you know we'll find all the different bones Um, we can tell usually whether or not the animal killed it by um, the terrain. If there's a sign of a struggle, uh, a lot of times you can see that caching behavior or drag trails more often with wolves and cougars, but you will see that sometimes. Um, and then we can find all sorts of really cool information about those kills. We can tell whether it's a male or a female, what species is it or did they kill an elk, a bighorn sheep, a porcupine Uh, All these different cool animals that these cougars are killing. Uh, We can take a tooth. So, you'll take a front incisor, and just like trees, you can chop it in half and count the number of rings on that tooth and tell how old that animal was that the animal that a cougar killed. Uh, We can take with elk the kind of foot bone, the metatarsis, as we call it. And that is kind of the last bone to develop in the womb or as a fetus. And you can actually trace the length of the metatarsis back to like harsh winter events. They'll have stunted growth, trace it back to the uh, health of the female um, the year before the year that she was, you know, raising that calf or that fetus inside of her. Um, So there's all sorts of really fantastic and cool data that we can gather just from slapping one of these collars uh, around a cougar's neck. And we can obviously follow them. Um, use planes to track them sometimes. And we can get pictures of them with their kittens. We can get counts Mm -hmm. that way. Um, Tell how many are still alive, if she lost any. So another really cool thing about these collars, you know, aside from just taking GPS points is they have something built in, some of these collars uh, called an accelerometer. And that's data that's being collected here in this uh, top box. And what it's doing is it's collecting 16 times per second directional movement on the three planes, the X plane, the Y plane, the Z plane. So vertical, horizontal, and then forward and back. And what we've done with animals like wolves, with cougars, um, I think even with animals like elk, is animals that are in captivity, or maybe that you can watch for extended periods of time, is we've equipped these collars to them and then recorded what they're doing at different time intervals. So maybe they're walking, maybe they're sleeping, maybe they're stalking or chasing prey, or maybe they're feeding. And we've been able to track what those movements look like on those three directional planes. And then when we put these collars on a wild animal, we'll collect you know two, three years of data, 16 times per second for that whole span. And you can actually go back and say okay we know that this cougar made an elk kill at this time and you can go back and you could actually see in the time where they were stalking where they started chasing the animal where they had actually grabbed it and brought it down and then where they started feeding on it you know it's been tied with you know putting cougars on treadmills which apparently they do much better with treadmills than wolves but we've actually been able to look at like caloric um, loss or uh, energy lost over that time with these different behaviors. And you can look at like how much energy they're losing on a daily basis from the different behaviors they're doing and how much energy they're gaining from feeding on elk or feeding on deer. So that's kind of one of the really cool things that we've um, also found with the collars is uh, the accelerometer colors. And we might be able to tease apart in the future if we get pretty good at it is actually nailing down something like hunting success. How often are cougars successful at making kills even though we can't actually watch them like we can wolves? We can see you know, wolves fail or succeed at bringing down an elk. We'll never see that in person with cougars. But if you say, see uh, feeding behavior in those three directional movements after a chase sequence, we could say, okay, this cougar was successful this time. Or if we see a chase sequence, without a feeding sequence after it, we can say, okay, they failed this time. Um, and you might be able to say, okay, cougars are successful at hunting 60% of the time, 50% of the time. Um, so that's kind of another cool avenue that hasn't been explored a lot yet, but I think will be explored quite a bit more in the future and especially as technology gets better. And then another thing we'll use again, which come back to the um, kind of non-invasive ways is trail cameras. So right now we have around 136 trail cameras spread out across the northern range of Yellowstone just to monitor these cougars. And hopefully we might be able to do some like multi-species modeling in there, but it's really to try and get at how many cougars are on the landscape. And you can say, okay, well, I picked up this individual on this camera, picked it up again on this camera, didn't pick up, only picked up this individual once. And you can start to get at estimates of how big is the cougar population just from looking at these cameras. Um, Another really cool advancement that we're doing now or that we've done in the past is genetic sampling. And that's where, again, you can go out to these sites where we find a set of tracks, we'll follow them back in time, we'll follow those tracks until you get to a place where a cougar maybe stopped and took a nap, bedded down, took it, made a kill, um, and then pooped somewhere, and built a latrine kind of like cats do in litter boxes. Sometimes if you get really crusty snow, they'll push their pad through and you'll get blood that's residual on the snow. And you can collect blood samples, hair samples, poop, scat samples, um, and you can actually amplify the DNA in those samples. And that's another way we've been able to count how many cougars are in Yellowstone by detecting unique DNA from all these different individuals in the population, just from collecting hair or poop out of the landscape that we find.
0: Oh, that's so cool. And every single person that's been on a hike with me, they will know from personal experience that I get really excited when I see poop. So, yeah, <laughs> it's just so cool when you see, just like poop, you're like, who was here and what were they doing? And it, it's, it's amazing yeah. what scat can tell you and tracks. It's just, it makes going out in nature so alive when you find these stories and you try to decipher what you see. And especially when you get down to that level, when you know who was there and it's, yes. I'm sure you've probably seen some crazy things. They're like, why is... F-136 in this area or something. When does she get over here? Or, you know, just these stories that you can start to put together, especially when you know 100% who it is that is there through their genetics.
1: Yeah, and I, I guess I can tell one of these really cool stories that was kind of a uh, a really cool, like meeting of the collars um, that way. So we had, we had put a collar out on wolves from the Junction Butte pack. We had M211, which was actually the first cougar I ever saw in my life, the first collaring operation I had ever been on. Threw us through the ringer. He, he took us on like an 18 mile journey. Again, it was my first day back after like a Thanksgiving break. I thought I was going to die for Christmas break. Um, threw us through the ringer. Loved to jump out of the trees um, that we had them in. And, you know, years down the road, I think this was last year now. We had M211, one of our collared collared male cougars, kill one of our collared female cow elk. And then we had our collared wolves from the Junction Butte pack come in, steal the kill from the cougar, and then they actually killed the cougar while it was feeding on that kill. Maybe they caught him by surprise. He might've tried to defend it from the wolves. Uh, Males will sometimes be maybe more likely to try and defend a kill from predators that come in because they don't have dependent kittens to worry about. So it's kind of this meeting of all the different collars. Um, And it's really cool to see some of these lives unfold and the the information that you can piece together just from slapping these GPS collars around animals were you all like like is this really going on right now yeah (laughs) and it was it was crazy because we have like 40 elk collared out of six to eight thousand so what are the odds at all that we're you know we only get a few of these collared elk that die each year on the landscape and we only have you know five or six cougars collared wolves you know again 25 to 30 probably collared so what are the odds that you know all of these come and, and meet in the same place and And it tells this cool story.
0: Oh, that's so cool. I would have been geeking out so hard. I am just you telling me that. Like, that's just, oh, that's so cool. So what exactly are you hoping to answer? Because right now that sounds very much like, um, you know, presence, absence, behavior. Is there a particular question that you are really hoping that you can nail down during all of the studies?
1: Yeah, I mean... Really the way I think of it is a lot of science, you know, we do have stuff where it's like science for science sake. There's just really cool little things that you discover along the way. But I think a lot of times, especially in conservation, we all do it because we're passionate about the species and we want to protect them and conserve them for the future. And a lot of times, the more you know about something, the more you're likely to understand it, the more you're likely to accept it. Uh, so, you know, while there's all these kind of cool things we can answer, like, you know, how many cougars are in Yellowstone, how do they interact with wolves and bears in the landscape, you know, how, how do they help raise their kittens, um, how do they impact the elk population, the deer population, I think ultimately, it, you know, there's that just that natural curiosity that comes out of it. But for a lot of us, I think it's, you know, learning this stuff so that we can protect them for the future. And I think that's kind of the ultimate goal. And definitely what comes out of, you know, looking at how they interact with prey and elk is showing that they're just one of these parts of this complex picture, this bigger picture uh, on the landscape, and that they, just like the wolves, just like the bears, just like the people, all play an integral role and a really important role in the Yellowstone ecosystem and really in systems across the West. And as we're starting to see, you know, even extending into the Great Plains where we have cougars, you know, people are seeing them in Nebraska and the Great Lakes regions. One made it all the way to Connecticut. Um, so I think I think that's kind of the ultimate goal that I see and, and why a lot of us, I think, do it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm actually reading the book about that cougar that made it all the way to Connecticut. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's called uh, Heart of a Lion yes, for anybody yeah. that is curious. I'll make sure I put a link in the show notes for that. But yeah, I'm currently reading that book because I actually went up to the Black Hills where that mountain lion originated from. Yes, And uh, Bill, my mentor Bill, uh, he's like, you gotta read this book. I'm like, of course I'll read that book. So yes, that's the infamous lion that made it all the way to Connecticut. So yeah, they can definitely move. On that note, let's switch gears a little bit. So all of our wildlife is managed. It just is uh, across state to state. And there's no exception for mountain lions. They also have certain policies certain ways that each state decides how they're going to manage their mountain lion cougar population. So what do you, what's going on with them from a policy standpoint?
1: Yeah, so I kind of kind of keep coming back to this comparison of like dogs, cats, of cougars, wolves and it really comes back to you know wolves are oftentimes visual people see them um, they they understand That they're on the landscape more so than maybe cougars. Cougars are kind of that secretive hidden animal um, that flies under the radar a lot of the times. And that's been pretty good for them in terms of conservation. You know, they're the widest ranging animal or predator in the Western hemisphere. You know, they extend from South America through all of Central America, all the way up to like borderline Southern Alaska and Canada until it kind of gets, you know, too cold for them but they, they have this wide ranging area. Um, and then, you know, most of the West across Yellowstone, they're doing really well. Uh, and most of the management around them, isn't thinking, you know, listing them as endangered species here and there. You know, they are listed as a protected species in California, but everywhere else, it's more along the lines of, we have a stable lion population here, a stable cougar population. How can we just manage it to keep it at that kind of stable level? Um, and there's, you know, all sorts of of different things that people are doing. You know, we don't have nearly as much pressure um, to hunt them. There's a lot of good groups, you know, houndsmen do a, a phenomenal job. Um, they're kind of one of those those groups that do a lot towards, towards conservation um, of cougars. And I think a lot of times we don't think of hunters as being the best conservationists, when we think of predators, in particular, we maybe see a different story with elk or other animals that provide food. Where oftentimes we tend to think of hunters killing wolves or other things out of hate or out of you know competition, they're trying to get them out of the landscape. Uh, and there are certainly people that will you know hunt wolves because that's a tradition that's been passed down, or trapping wolves—it's part of their livelihood. But with cougars, a lot of times. You know houndsmen are the ones that are are taking people out to haunt cougars or they're just doing it because they love to do it um, it's again one of their traditions that's always been in their family or they've loved to do it it's a way of training their dogs and bonding with their dogs um, and they love to see cougars you know our houndsman goes out and takes people out and most of the time he just goes and trees cats and he just loves to see him in the wild and oftentimes, whenever new bills come up or other things to you know, increase hunting, they might be the first people to say, no, hold on a second. Science maybe doesn't support that. Or we don't want to increase the hunting of lions. We think it's good where it is. Um, and they've been some of the biggest kind of proponents of conserving cougars, mountain lions, across the West. And it is the main way that they're hunted. Um, there's a couple of states out West, I think Oregon, uh, Washington that don't allow hounds at all. Most of that time cougars that are being killed, they're just opportunistic when they're running in run, happen to come across a cougar when they're hunting elk or deer or something like that. About 80, 90% of the time, if you're killing a cougar, you're doing it with hounds um, that's really the biggest way. And a lot of times the only like tried and true method of doing it, because again, they're so secretive, um, that they kind of slip under the radar a lot of the times.
0: And I really love that you brought the houndsman up because anybody that might not have been exposed to their, like, their traditions and what they do might not really understand, one, how efficient they are. Because there really is not, I mean, you have, like, leg snares, you know. Otherwise, these cats are really good at not being caught or seen. So if we as scientists want to actually understand these cats in any way, shape or form, partnering with somebody that knows them better than even us, really? Yeah, is so smart. It's it's just so smart. And again, since they do know these animals so well, then they are and can be the biggest advocates for them. And so, yeah, I'm really grateful that you brought them up because unfortunately, depending on who you're talking to, sometimes they get a, just a bad reputation yeah. when they probably love the cats more than anyone else. I mean, yeah. not necessarily, but you know, like a wildlife biologist like you or... I'm just an insane cat enthusiast, so like I love them a lot, but I mean, I might not even love them near as much as somebody that's going out on the land with them every weekend, all the time and taking people to see them and partnering with wildlife biologists to further research that they can be around more. Yeah, and so I'm really glad that you brought them up as a very important stakeholder in cougar conservation, because who's going to be affected more than them if cougars are off the land? I mean, we can exactly. go study other things. Yeah, I will yeah. be super butthurt that I can't track them and never see one. But like it's not gonna affect my livelihood and it's not I will just be very sad as yeah. like a advocate of biodiversity and healthy ecosystems. Yeah. But it's a whole different story when it's your tradition, it's your livelihood, it's been passed down for generations. Yeah, and it helps with science. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. And cool. it's,
1: it's something where like, you know, an outsider comes in and, and has never, you know, been out with houndsmen or they don't, I get it. It's hard to sometimes like understand that connection or think, you know, if you're going out and, you know, maybe periodically killing a mountain lion or killing elk or other animals, you know, how can you also love that animal or like appreciate it on the landscape? Um, so sometimes I think it, it it makes sense. It can be hard for people to grasp how, you know, houndsmen or other people can be, you know, huge advocates for these species, for these cougars. Um, but until you go out with them and, and, you know, see them interacting with the dogs, see them you know, taking, helping us out to do all this research and sitting down and actually having conversations with them, only really then do you understand that perspective, that tradition and learn to appreciate it. Uh, a lot more.
0: Yeah. It's so easy to pass judgment. I've
1: <laughs> yeah, I've
0: learned that so many times in all of my travels and meeting just so many people around the world. Like you can't pass judgment until you actually talk to somebody. And if you don't like them after that, that's okay. That's cool. Like that's fine. But until we actually sit down and have a genuine conversation, then like, I just, I have no right to judge somebody for their traditions and what they do. And hunting is even those of, any of us that can't fathom shooting an animal like ourselves, the hunting has a very strong part in conservation and it's just one aspect of it. It's not everything. It's just one aspect, but it is there. And so, yeah, I mean, I would love to go out with you or anybody else and like a whole team, you know, and experience that myself. And what is it like to go out with a group uh, you know, a houndsman and and their dogs, and also collar a cat or something. That would just be a dream come true. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just gonna keep bringing it up until it. Happens. Oh
1: yeah. Oh no. I mean, I, I get it. It's but it's by far still like the favorite part of my job is getting to like <laughs> go out and and collar
0: cougars. It's oh my god, this sounds freaking phenomenal. Oh uh, yeah. So. I'm really glad you brought them up as a very important stakeholder in this. So, because again, a lot of the times and, and understandably too, they might get a lot of just backlash if they show their face in a lot of different ways from people just saying mean things. So you don't really hear from them. You don't really see them much on social media. You don't really. Yeah. They're just, they're really good at not being in the spotlight, just like the cats. (laughs) I've come to find that the houndsmen just don't like the spotlight, but they love the cats. And so They have every right to be a part of the conversation as well, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah. So let's switch gears for a little bit and go back to you. So you've already shared a really awesome, crazy story, which was great. Is there any other wild stories that you've had in your adventures, wherever these cats take you and what they make you do to, to study them? Do you have any other wild stories you can share with us?
1: Oh yeah, I've had oh just like on collarating operations alone, uh, I've had so many cases like M211. On multiple occasions, he became kind of known as a jumper because as soon as you'd get up to a tree, he'd like see the people or see the dogs and he's like, nope, I'm gonna leave, I don't like it. And then he'd, <laughs> he'd bounce out of the tree. And I was like, oh gosh, here goes another two mile chase through, you know, 40 degree slope and like rocky, like talus slopes through like, you know, a foot of snow, two feet of snow, or if it's even like worse, like two inches of snow, where it's like, oh, that wouldn't be as bad. But then it's just like the slickest crap in the world. (laughs) And you're just falling over all the time, like cursing at the cat. Like, why are you taking us everywhere? (laughs) Just stay in the tree. It's better for you. It's better for us. I've had so many cases like that where I've just been thrown through the ringer with these different collared cougars, had all sorts of other encounters following elk that had died of running into grizzly bears in the backcountry. Those can be the worst where you you get 10 yards away and then all of a sudden this bear pops up out of nowhere, charges at you. Uh, Luckily, all the encounters I've had, he stopped right before I had the bears have stopped right before I've had to, you know, spray bear spray or anything like that. Um, and they've kind of realized that I'm not a wolf or another grizzly bear coming in to steal the kill. And they're like, Oh no, you're people you're not exhibiting also like threatening signs. You're you're showing me that you're not a threat. Um, and every time luckily the bears, you know, leave the area or gone back to the carcass. But naturally when you're following cougars and wolves to kill sites, uh, you'll run into other animals that are also seeking out that food um, and seeking out those kills. So, yeah, learning how to how to deal with bears in the backcountry is is a big one. Um, it's a big part of my job. And we'll have you know Wild West quick draws with kind of fake or empty canisters of of bear spray to make sure you know who's the fastest draw. In 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 the, in <laughs> the case Wild of style. yeah, straight Wild <laughs> West style. Who's the fastest quick draw of the bear spray? Like that's the person you want you want in the out in the field with you out in the front ready to ready to um, spray a bear if you need to at a moment's notice and it happens so fast i mean you you think that you're gonna have time to react but you know st- i mean it slows down too it could be a minute interaction that you get out of there you're like wow it's only been five minutes that felt like an hour because um, your adrenaline's pumping and you're just thinking at at such a fast rate of trying to do everything you need to get out of there um safely but yeah
0: yeah that's scary (laughs) that is so scary like grizzlies are scary
1: (laughs) yeah and there's 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 all the like glamorous sides of like oh my gosh you get to study wolves you get to study cougars that's so awesome and then you're thrown out into a 20 mile day and you're out until 11 p.m walking through like early regenerative forest where like every foot is another tree that you're just like pushing your body through you can't see in front of you more than 10 feet and you're just doing it for hours and like blistering heat there's flies everywhere there's mosquitoes everywhere so a lot of times we'll, we'll take people out and like oh gosh you do that like every day it's like yeah yeah it's not all it's not all glamorous Like a few times a year we get to do the really fun stuff of you know collaring these animals most most of the time we never see them we're just following their lives in the after like after they've already been there uh, and trudging through the same areas that they move through where it's much easier on four legs and being three feet tall than it is being six feet tall on two legs uh, so there's a lot of those aspects and in, in wildlife work in general where people think it's you know this glamorous dream job and like if you're really passionate about it, it is, it's phenomenal. Um, but it's not all, all fun and games, especially when you're in like bear country and you really have to be vigilant at all times about that.
0: Yeah. I totally appreciate that you brought up the non-sexy side of this. Cause it's true. It is very real. I mean, same here. I mean, I'm on my computer like all day long. Oh yeah. People are just like, So what is it that you do? I'm like, honestly, the sexy stuff that I do is like this, like I sit down and I meet incredible people, um, but also, and also my amazing job that I have as well. The titles sound great and the perks are amazing, but from a day to day, man, it is shit, it is not sexy at all. I'm like any way, shape or form. And I love that you bring that up. And I really do appreciate that. Just your honesty about that. And I think I would love to go down that a little further too. So. You have been all over the United States. You have seen some crazy things. You have this amazing PhD that you're working on too, but I'm sure that there's been some something difficult that you've had to overcome along the way or some serious struggles that you have. Is there anything that you would feel comfortable enough sharing with us of maybe something that you've had to get over or get through in your journey or maybe even that you're currently going through? Is there yeah. anything that you could share with us?
1: Yeah, I would say the biggest thing and this is something that you know, I see with a lot of people now um, is making that transition in graduate school after especially spending three and a half, four years out in the field in Yellowstone every day following the lives of these animals, to now transitioning to a PhD where I'm using all historic data or data that, you know, we're just collecting as part of our day-to-day operations. I don't need to be there to collect it. I don't have a field season per se. You know, I'll go out for my sanity with people and collect data here and there, but as you said, for the most part, I'm sitting in front of a computer, staring at, you know, our code and doing, looking at statistical models and that sort of thing. That's kind of my life, or reading scientific papers every day. But since transition transitioning to graduate school, um, I think that's been really hard, is making that jump from, you know, part of the reason I got into this field was to not have a job sitting in an office staring at a computer all day long and now that's my life for the most part you know i'll have periods here and there where i might help out with cougar captures you know a day or two for a month and then you know the other 11 months is sitting in front of a computer Um, but on top of that and i guess getting more serious is what a lot of people struggle with especially moving into graduate school moving into the kind of like academic area is stuff like imposter syndrome, where you get into these fields and everyone that's you're surrounded by are you know tenured professors that have published one hundred and fifty papers and you're you know just getting started, you've never written a paper before. You've never done you know these complex statistical analyses or developed these fancy matrix models that I'm kind of using for my work. you know everything you're learning on the fly and you really you're trying to Learn as much as you can, take as much as you can, and then build up the confidence and then say, look, I'm an expert in this field. I know how to do this. I need to just like take that step, take that leap and do it. And that's been kind of the hardest thing for me, especially these first two years and starting graduate school in COVID, where everything was remote. You know, I didn't meet my advisor uh, in person, you know, maybe two times the entire first year of my program or I, I still haven't until three weeks ago, I hadn't met half the people on my uh, graduate committee the first two years of my program because of things like COVID. And that's been, I think, the really hard learning to like deal with that. And then having that imposter syndrome of you know not feeling like I'll ever know enough or be anywhere near experienced or smart enough to develop these complex models that, you know, I'll have to do by the end. And that's, I think been the hardest thing is I've been reluctant to take those steps of like, I just need to dive in, you know, I just need to do it, get into it, fail a bunch and like, accept that that's okay. And that's kind of been the hardest thing for me as a perfectionist. Um, I've kind of learned, like developed those habits of, procrastinating because i don't feel like i know anything enough to like actually do it like i'm just going to fail epically if i try to do it and then you know afraid to like go up to my advisor or other people and be like look i didn't i don't know how to do this or you know i failed horribly at this or put something out that i think is good and then have someone say that's the worst way you could have done it like that's terrible um so there's always and i know so many graduate students that go through that of constantly thinking Like everything they're doing is just um, a horrible, like it's not the right way to do it. Like they're just going to get yelled at um, for doing, trying something that way. But until you take that step to actually do it, you realize that, you know, it's not like that at all. Everyone's there to help you. Most of the people have been in that same position. Um, And really, the only way to learn how to do it is to fail at it and learn where you go wrong uh, and accept that that's, you know, part of the process of learning. Uh, So that's kind of where I'm starting to now accept that, um, finally, and ready to get my hands dirty and and do all the, you know, complicated coding and stuff like that. But, you know, that's also that kind of big jump of, like, learning how to code. You know, 50 years ago, the wildlife field was exactly what I was doing, you know, out in the field, recording all these, like, natural history observations where now a lot of wildlife ecology has transitioned into computer modeling, computer statistics that's you know the bread and butter of all the science that's really going on now um, in all these amazing places around the world. so it's kind of accepting that you know it isn't all gonna be out in the field, you know just doing that component you're gonna have to um, sit down and like take the time to learn coding and learn these different languages and uh, and ways of doing things that you're you're probably not comfortable with, and that you didn't expect to have to be comfortable with going in.
0: Right. Yes. Thank you for sharing that with me. Yes, I've had the feelings of imposter syndrome so many times. It is yeah. not funny. I still deal with it all the time. I mean, being a conservation biologist that just randomly started a podcast, like what? <laughs> so I deal with that. I mean, I I. I definitely feel you. Exactly. And I still do. I, I just released a brand new episode today in a style I've never done before. And I still was like so insanely nervous that I was making a mistake or that I was. Th- I'm like, God, I- I've released 80 episodes and I still have <laughs> yeah. this feeling like I still do. And you would think it that it would just go away. And apparently it doesn't. You just get more used to being uncomfortable. I guess, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I and mean, it's not yeah. near
0: as scary to try new things because you're just like, wow, I'm just like always uncomfortable and that's okay because that means we're growing, we're stretching, we're yeah. we're reaching the next level, we are doing the next thing. Um, so yeah, that's just like every single day now. <laughs> yep. Every single day and it's okay. And I, I've never met one person on the podcast or anything that has not f- had the feelings of imposter syndrome. So yeah. it seems that we all deal with it and yet we don't talk about it enough that we deal with yes. this, that all of us deal with this. And in very similar way, if there's anybody listening that is going through you know, their grad school program or I, a lot of people that have recently been on the podcast just graduated. And so now they're having like a new round of imposter syndrome because they're fresh, they're fresh PhDs. Yes. Yeah. And now they're like, no, (laughs) (laughs) it's just, it's just constant, it's constant. So on that, do you have a particular piece of advice or a message or anything that you want to make sure that everyone listening walks away with?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest thing, and I I kind of mentioned it a little bit and, um, I think, I think it's, uh, Rochelle Burks, Rochelle Burks, maybe, uh said this in a a speech once and she's dealt with it a lot and um she's had a lot more issues with um, stuff like racism and in science which is still a huge issue that runs rampant especially in academia you know wildlife science especially has always been very white dominated and there's always been that mentality going on but what she said and something that's kind of always stuck with me is you just have to do it you know you're going to be uncomfortable you're going to feel like you're not worthy, but like you just have to take that jump or take that leap and do it. And like the only way you're ever going to get more comfortable with public speaking or with doing these analyses, complex analyses, or working with code, or you know learning to like accept that you're the expert in your field and like lead a meeting with other really established science scientists the only way to get better at that and to get more comfortable with it is to just do it, you know, just take that step. Um, that's the biggest thing that I'm still nowhere near <laughs> accepting the advice all, that I just gave. <laughs> uh, I'm starting to get better at it, but, um, that's, that's what I would say. It's always going to be, you know, a struggle there, but I think just, just taking that step and doing it is, mm-hmm. is the first step, the hardest step, and just keep telling yourself that, you know, you're, you're an expert. And oftentimes, you know more about your field or your specific study, especially in graduate school than anyone else on the planet. You know, no one's more well equipped or in a better position to tell that story than you are.
0: Yes, that is fantastic advice. Awesome. Great. So like, let's say that somebody listening might want to get a hold of you, or they might want to be like, hey, Jack, I'm in Yellowstone. Like, I would like to buy you a beer or whatever. They might want to learn more about your work or your research. What is the best way to get a hold of you?
1: Yeah. So uh, I have a Twitter account, which, you know, science Twitter has become huge in academia. That's where I follow a lot of fellow scientists, stay in touch with them. So I have a Twitter at uh, Jay Raby r a b e 21 uh, so that's my kind of twitter account which i'm not super active on that but i follow it and follow everybody else's stuff trying to become more more active and more educational in that um but yeah so that's probably the best way and then i guess i also have an email which again is the j raby and then two one two three at uh, gmail.com so
0: Perfect. And I will definitely have all those links in the show notes so that anyone just want to easily find you or find that Twitter. If they forgot what it was, whether that handle was or or any of the other things that we discussed, then I'll definitely make sure it's all in the show notes. But again, Jack, this was so much fun. And next time I come to Yellowstone, or if you come down to Denver, we are definitely hanging out. And it's going oh, to be for lost.
1: sure. <laughs> yeah. If you come back to Yellowstone, let me know. I'll be here for at least the next year. if not a little bit more than that. So if you're ever around, um, yeah, I can definitely take you out, look for wolves, and then uh, who knows, maybe uh, get your first cougar sighting, oh. It should be awesome.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> that would be phenomenal. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Jack. Can't wait to get it out.
1: Yeah. Thank you again, Brooke. It's, it's been a blast.